Well, good morning, friends. My name is Dave. It is great to be here with you back in the worship center, like Pastor Paul and Bethany said. It's a little more empty than we wish, but it's still good to get back to normal just a little bit. And today marks the official launch of our fall series where we're encouraging you to huddle up, to, to join together with three or four other people to go smaller and deeper in God's word. And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to be taking a little trip through the New Testament book of Romans. And it's a series that we're calling Transformed. We're talking about the transformed life in Christ. And before I dive in today, I want to talk to you a little bit about what our trip is going to look like. This past summer, Amy and I had plans to go to Europe. She was actually born there. My wife was born on an Air Force base just outside of Madrid, and she's never been back ever since she moved back to the States at one years old. And so we were going to go to Europe for my sabbatical. And what we discovered in, in planning that trip, even though it was canceled by, of course, COVID, which ruins everything. Um, what we discovered as we planned this trip to Europe was that there is so much to see. I mean, if you've ever been to Europe, you realize, wow, how do you, how do you go? We were going to go for 19 glorious days, and we are still just going to scratch the surface. And so we had all these hard decisions to make. Would we go to Germany or Austria or Italy or Spain? Would we try to do the United Kingdom? Would we spend time in Paris or Lisbon or London or Amsterdam. And in the end, what we determined was that we were going to have to leave some things out. And I tell you that, friends, because that is how our trip through the, or through the book of Romans is going to be. I mean, there's so much to see in the book of Romans that we have to leave some things out because this is just going to be an eight-week trip. And on this trip, we're going to hit some high points. And I'm telling you this because I know some of you, and you're going to say, Oh, I really wish we could have gone to Barcelona. I really wanted to go to Paris. That's my favorite chapter. That's my favorite verse. And I need to tell you, we'll come back to Romans again. But for this eight weeks, here's my challenge to you. Lean in with us. Let's dive in together into these passages that we're going to hit. And let's, let's ask God to use his word in our lives to change us and transform us into the people that he longs for us to be and needs us to be in this world for his kingdom to move forward in these difficult days. And so with that, let me pray and then we'll, then we'll get going. Father, we do turn to you and say we need your strength, we need your power, we need your word to challenge us and change us and shape us by the power of your Holy Spirit. As we dive into this book and take this, this short journey, would you use these passages to mold us and transform us? Would you encourage us? Would you challenge us? Would you prop us up by your strength that we could be your church, your people? That's what we need, Lord. That's what we long for. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year is AD 57, and from the city of Corinth in Asia Minor, Paul writes a letter to a group of Jesus followers in the city of Rome. And right away in this letter, we learn that Paul has never been to Rome, that he does not know these people to whom he writes personally. But there's obviously been some correspondence between them, and Paul feels that this young church needs a strong dose of gospel theology. And so he writes to them, he writes passionately and he writes persuasively to explain how the gospel creates transformation 
in the life of a person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. You know, sometimes when we think about the gospel, we tend to think of it as this entry-level message, this sort of 101 course in following Jesus. Like, it's just the beginning part. But in Romans, Paul seems to say something different because he is writing about the transforming power of the gospel in the believer's life. In fact, he writes this letter to a group of people who have already been following Jesus for a while. He says this in chapter 1, verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. He's writing to people who are already following Jesus and he says, the gospel still has power for you, transforming power in your life. And what he's doing is he's calling them, and I think he's calling us, to dig deeply into the gospel to discover its power for us today. You know, in uh, Christopher Nolan's 2005 movie, Batman Begins, a young Bruce Wayne falls down an old well that's been covered up for years, and he ends up underneath the, the Bruce, the, the, the Wayne family manor, and this series of elaborate caves. And it's in these caves where he discovers all these secrets, the secrets that lead to him becoming the Batman. In other words, what Bruce learned was that there was so much more to his family estate than he ever realized when he was just in it on the surface. He actually has to go deeper into it to discover its power. And and that, friends, is what I believe we're called to do with the gospel, to dive deeply into it that we might discover its power for us. So this morning, we're going to begin our, our Romans tour, if you will, and what has been called the most important passage in Romans. Paul, you said that to me this week, right? Like this, this passage has been revered for, for centuries. Martin Luther said that Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25, is the chief point and the very central place of this letter and of the whole Bible. He said, in this passage is the heart of the Reformation. Leon Morris says, it is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. That's, that's how highly esteemed this, this portion of scripture we're diving into today is. Because in these words, these words we're about to read that Paul wrote, he's sharing the good news of how human beings can be restored into a right relationship with God. That's what we're talking about today. So here we go. Let's start. Chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Paul is summarizing here an argument that he's been making for two chapters, and that's this. All of us, every single human, religious people and non-religious people are tempted to try and earn our righteousness, prove our acceptance to God through following a a moral law. Now, for a non-religious person, Paul says that this law is written on their hearts, that they have sort of an intuitive sense of right and wrong, that we all sort of know that. We have this conscience, if you will, but we know what's right and what's wrong. But, but he says, here's what happens in our world because of sin and brokenness and depravity. People choose to make that law fuzzy. We choose to blur the lines of morality. Friends, this is why almost 
Every single person you talk to will say that they are a good person. You can go to prisons in this country and talk to the inmates and they will all say, I am a good person. Why? Because being a good person has kind of become this fuzzy idea with no very clear and real standard to compare yourself to. I sort of liken this to, to playing golf. James, you've been playing some golf lately, that's right. And, and it's like playing golf, but completely ignoring the standard of what a good score is. We call that in golf par. Par is the standard of success in golf. It tells you if you have a good score or a bad score. That's what par does. And I actually did this just the other day. I went out onto the golf course to play around with some buddies. Now, I have to tell you, I have not played golf for eight years. It's been eight years since I went out on the course, picked up a golf club. And so I went out there to play with some friends, and it was ugly. It started off all right, but it got bad quick. I did not do all that well. But, but if there was no par, no measurement of success of what's good and what's bad, I could easily come home to my wife and say, honey, I played great. I got a seven on hole number one. You know, in fact, on hole three, it only took me 11 shots to get the ball into the cup. And, and on hole, on hole number eight, I got a six. And this guy in front of us, he hit the ball in the water twice. He got a nine. He got a nine. I got a six. I'm thinking of turning pro. It only took me 73 shots to complete the entire nine-hole course. Now, when there is no standard of goodness, you see, I can feel good about however I play. But what Paul says to us in Romans is life is not a game we play without par. He says there actually is a standard of what it looks like to live a righteous life. And we find that standard in God himself and in the law he gives us in the scriptures. Another thing he wants us to know is that while making the law blurry doesn't work to make us better, to make us good, it also doesn't work to get extremely focused on, to get extremely zealous about the law. This is what we call in our world religion. Attempting to earn God's favor by trying to follow all the rules. Trying to prove to God that I am good enough. And in our passage today, Paul very simply and very clearly says, you can't do it. You can't do it. You know you can't do it. You've experienced not doing it. And let me just tell you straight up, you can't do it. In fact, the more you try, the more you try to follow the law of God, the more you will actually see how unable you are to do so. Have you ever experienced this? Where you you look at something, and, and at the outset you think, that's pretty easy, that looks simple, I could do that, right? And you feel that way, you really honestly do, until you actually engage it and give it a try. I remember when I was in high school, and my friends and I used to go every year to this carnival type event that came to our city called La Vista Days. And there'd be all these booths with all these games. And there was one in particular I remember because I got sucked into it. It was a guy and he had these little wiffle balls. And all you had to do was take the wiffle ball, throw it off this board about five feet in front of you and have it bounce off the board and land in a bucket, a pretty good sized bucket right in front of the board. And the guy said, hey, if you can make three balls into the bucket, you can win this giant stuffed animal for your girlfriend. I was like, man, that sounds great. How much is it like to play? And he was like, it's only, you know, three bucks. Three bucks. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you five shots. If you make three of five, three bucks, five balls, you make three of them, get this big stuffed animal. I'm thinking, 
This is simple. This is easy. And I must have spent $45 trying to get those stupid balls into the bucket. And yet, he made it look so easy. And I thought, this is so simple. But friends, actually engaging it, actually trying it, proved to me that it was not as simple as I thought it was. And that's actually what the law does for us. It actually helps us to see how far short of God's standard we fall. One author I read this week says, The law is more like a thermometer than a thermostat. It helps us take the spiritual temperature of our hearts, but it does not actually have the power to change the spiritual temperature of our hearts. So, if the law doesn't work, this is what Paul starts off by saying, the law doesn't work, it's not the solution, it's not the answer. But if it doesn't work, if rewriting the rules doesn't work, if leaning in and trying really, really hard to follow God's way doesn't work, then what works? What will change our status, our relationship with the Lord. And here's where we get to the good news, the gospel. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Paul Paul starts here by saying, if you want to know what righteousness, the righteousness of God looks like in this world, look at Jesus. The English Standard Version says it this way, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been shown to us. It's been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You want to see what the standard is? You want to see what it looks like to actually live this way and follow the law perfectly? We look at Jesus. Furthermore, Paul says, the law and the prophets, that's a little phrase. It's a way he he refers to the Old Testament. He's, He's saying the Old Testament has told us that he was coming. They've testified about this. They've told us this Messiah, this Savior, this perfect one, this one who embodies the righteousness of God, someday he's going to come. The Old Testament has been saying that for centuries. So Jesus is this now tangible manifestation of God's righteousness amongst us. He's shown up on the scene, verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Paul is saying, now that we have a picture of the righteousness of God in Jesus, I also want you to know that there's a pathway to be made right with God through Jesus. Specifically through faith in Jesus. By trusting Jesus to make us right with God instead of looking to or leaning on or trusting in our own efforts. It's sort of like a picture where we're trying to follow the rules and be good Um, might look like trying to climb up a wall and get to God. Like God's up there and we're down here and we just have to climb this wall. We just have to scale this wall. And try as we might, we cannot get up there. We keep climbing and scratching and clawing and get a few feet up and then we slip and fall off and, and, you know, land back on the ground and God's up there and we just can't get up there. And then, what does God do? He tosses us a rope and says, quit trusting yourself. Quit trying to, to earn your way up. Just... Trust this rope that I've thrown to you. Just grab a hold of it and I will pull you up. You can get up here by my strength, not on your strength. And in this analogy, friends, Jesus is the rope that God uses to pull us up into right standing with him. And so God says, what are you believing in? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your own Goodness, your own merits, your own righteousness, or or the pathway to righteousness he has given you in Jesus. 
This righteousness, this right standing with God that all of us long for, that all of us know we need to have, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And then he reminds us again, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, between religious and non-religious, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And let me just clarify something here. The Bible is not saying, and this is kind of what I, I thought the Bible said for years, but the Bible is not saying we are all morally the same. It's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that we are all, all in the same moral predicament. Sure, there are people in this world who are less moral than you. There are people in this world who are more moral than you. But you are all, all of us, in, are in the same moral predicament. Let me illustrate it for you this way. I'm a pretty tall guy. I'm taller than the average person. I'm taller than Allison, right, Allison? Like, you want to check, want to compare? Yeah, I'm a little taller than Allison. Yeah, okay, just a little. Although Allison's pretty tall, you know, there's no shame in not being tall. Um, but I'm taller than must. And, and if we stood here next to each other, you'd say, Dave is clearly taller than Allison, maybe a good eight inches, right? But if our goal in standing here together was to reach up and grab the rafters up near the ceiling of this worship center. If that was our goal, I might be closer to getting there than Allison, but neither of us are going to get there. We are both in the same predicament. We both fall woefully short. And that's exactly what the Bible is reminding us of here. Some of us are better moral climbers than others, but in the end, none of us can get to the top of the wall, and all of us need the rope of Jesus to get there. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And now we go a layer deeper. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we trust him to make us right with God, what actually happens? Well, first Paul tells us, when we put our faith in Jesus, we're justified. And to understand justification, we have to know that it was a legal term in the Roman world. This is, a, this is like a, a courtroom tor- term where a person was declared right or innocent by, by a judge or by a court of law. And the picture here for us is you're in a courtroom, you're on trial for a crime, you're guilty of that crime, the lawyers are going back and forth making their cases, and in the end, in the end, the judge stands before you with a verdict. And he slams down his mallet and he says, innocent, not guilty, justified. That's justification. It's a declaration of your status. It says you are now no longer guilty, you are now no longer condemned, you are now innocent and justified. Paul says, when you trust Jesus, you are justified, how? Freely by his grace. In other words, the judge doesn't turn to you and say, you know, here's some work for you to do, here's some community service, or a seven-step program you have to complete, and then once you do these things, then you'll be all good. No, no, no. You don't earn or pay for this justification at all. It's free. It's an undeserved gift of God. And it happens in a moment. So when you trust Christ, you're justified, declared not guilty. All the ways of your life where you've ever fallen short or will ever fall short in the future have been forgiven. Second, Paul tells us in this verse that when we trust Jesus, we are 
redeemed. And this is a really important word. It really describes who we are in Christ and what happens to us when we put our faith in Christ. Because to redeem something means to buy it back, to restore it to its intended state. People in our culture use the word redeem when they buy something back at a pawn shop. Let's just say you fall on hard times, economically speaking, things are really tight, you need some money, and so you go to the pawn shop and you hawk your engagement ring. Would you ever do that, Bethany? No, never, (laughs) never. But maybe you have to and you do, right? And you do it with the hope that maybe you need that money for a little bit, but at some point you get enough money back so that you can go and buy back that engagement ring. Get it back, you buy it back. That's called redeeming it regaining possession of it, paying the price needed to bring that ring back to its rightful owner. And what Paul is saying here is that at the very center of the good news is this reality. God has paid the price to bring you back into his possession, right into right relationship with him. He says, you are that ring that 